Good morning. Good morning. I, I'm so happy to see that you came. I thought if you saw the seven woes that you'd all schedule your looking house for today. So. so thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. So as you can see, I have titled this Four Questions and Seven Woes When Left and Right Attack, attack Center. Uh, I think it's Four Questions and Seven Woes sounds like a movie title. But the questions are from self-righteous religious men who are terrifying bullies. They're frightened for their lives and their power, and they want it for themselves. But this dialogue that Jesus has with them is considered one of the most important dialogues in the Bible other than the parables and the miracles in the gospel tradition. So these men are afraid they'll lose their power and want to humiliate Jesus. So, here I am with my husband. As new Christians in the 60s, oh, my husband and I were excited to serve Jesus, and that was a good thing. But we were influenced by popular authors of the day, and that was sometimes good and sometimes bad. Some of what they said was instructive, and some of it was manipulative and soul-deadening. We got involved in a church where the pastor was bombastic, authoritative, and destructive under the biblical guise of correct doctrine. It was self-righteousness veiled in the phrase grace. And that was bad again. So we became self-righteous and sure that we were the only ones who had things right. Our children finally convinced us to leave that church, so we did. We started attending University Presbyterian Church, and Earl Palmer taught us and corrected a lot of the false teaching that we had received, and this was humbling and a great, huge relief. We had raised our children with a lot of false guilt around the false doctrine, and it took me a long time to be able to tell anyone that we had been so duped. So, that's hard to confess to you. In our passages today, Jesus will come head to head with men who teach and live what they believe is God's word, but their teaching is anti-God and anti-grace. Now, perhaps you've been in a situation where someone said something to you or asked you a question, you couldn't think of a retort or the answer to the question, so later on you're going over it and over it in your mind and you think, this is what I should have said. <laughs> well, Jesus is so in the moment and so knows what's going on that he never has that problem. So, he demonstrates what it is to be constantly aware of the motives and deeper meanings behind words. When we do inner healing prayer here in this church, people come and they have a presenting problem, and often it is manifested with anger, jealousy, vindictiveness, unforgiveness. And so when we pray for this person, we're always asking the Lord to show us what's the deeper meaning behind this, because Anger, fear, unforgiveness are bullies. And Christians should not live with external bullies that try to tell them how to live or internal bullies that tell them how to live. 
The follower of Jesus is never freed or free when they are being bullied. And that's what Jesus is going to address today, the bullies. And so we are blessed by Jesus' insight. And in our lesson today, in our scripture, we have political left, the Sadducees, and the political right, the Pharisees. And they become their worst selves when they unite to try to bully Jesus. But he represents the center, or freedom. And here, Jesus is going to win. But there is still no understanding from the left and the right. Jesus will grieve their lack of understanding and pronounce doom to their power grabs. The questions that they are going to ask Jesus and his answers show us his intelligence. We have seen his miraculous power to heal and feed, and we have seen his compassion and love, and now we're going to see his quick wit that always is rooted in his center, or God. So turn to Matthew 22, verse 15. This is our first sentence, and I'm going to spend some time with this sentence so that we know where we are. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. So today I want us to put ourselves into this story. So first of all, we have the stage. We are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at Passover. Jerusalem has gone from about 40,000 people to over half a million. And the sun is beating down. And there's the noise of the carts and the cobblestones and the animals and the crowds. And it's dusty. And people are shouting. There's street vendors. There's traffic jams. And people are running around and children screaming. It's a busy, lively city. Okay, that's the stage. Who are the players here? The Pharisees, the left, and they represent religious power. And if you have the, the sheets or you refer to the sheets from your notes that I handed out earlier in the year about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there are some extras on your table. And they, and you will see that they are a group, they're middle class laymen, and they hold to the law for purity, and they think Jesus is a dangerous radical. All right, but let's look at our sentence up here again. Then the Pharisees went out and they planned to trap him in words. They sent, did they go themselves? No, they sent their disciples. So we have the Pharisees' disciples, the younger men, because the older men want, didn't want to be part of this confrontation. So they sent their younger men because they would be free to ask these questions. And then we have, look at this, we have the Herodians. Who are they? They are Jews that lean towards Rome. And so we have the Pharisees, um, and on the other side of the Pharisees are the Zealots. And then we have the Herodians, and the other side of them are the Roman militia. So these two opposite sides are coming together to put Jesus in a vice. What's the backstory? Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, as we heard um, through Palm Sunday. He came. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They're calling him their Messiah. And then what does he do? He goes into the temple, and he turns over the tables, and he says, you turn my house 
uh, your identities, and he says, my house is a house of prayer. And then the children in the temple, it says, start shouting, Hosanna, son of David. So here he, this, Jesus is being called Messiah. The Pharisees hear this. The Herodians hear this. The Sadducees hear this. And they got to stop it. So what do they do? They get together and they try to trap him, as it says, in his words. Do you see the irony there? John the Apostle calls Jesus the word. Can you trap the word, the one who originated words, with words? I don't think so, but they're going to try. So they come to him and they say, teacher, oozing charm from every corner. They oil the way around the floor. We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because they pay no attention to who you pay no attention to who they are. Oh, they're gonna trick the Son of God with flattery. Is that laughable? I think so too. Okay. Tell us then, they say, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the tax, the imperial tax, to Caesar or not? This is a black and white question. There is no third way. Is government king or is God king? And the tax was fiercely resented by the Jews. Now, Jesus says, knowing their evil intent, he says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He tells the crowd that they're trying to trap him and he knows. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and they asked him, he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And this is what it looked like. It's the inscription, Divine Augustus. And this is an offense to the Jews because it calls Augustus God. When Jesus uses his says, when he talks here, he's using the present tense. So what he's going to tell them is as true today as it was then. And what belongs to God is the center of the question. God's humanity, us, we bear God's image. This coin bears Caesar's image. So you give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God's. So we have um, the Pharisees who give too little, and the Herodians who give too much. That same day, the Sadducees, who say, Matthew warns us, these people say there's no resurrection. They came to him with a question. Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. This was a law that Moses set up to protect widows so that they would always have support and protection. But the Sadducees are now going to twist this. And they say Moses is their only teacher. And also, remember, they believe in no resurrection. So he, they say, now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right down to the seventh. Now you think, 
Wine was about the fourth in the picture here, but they didn't. Anyway, so finally, finally, the woman died, so no one would else have to marry her. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? This sounds like another musical. Seven brothers, seven bride. <laughs> Makes you want to sing, bless your beautiful hide. No, we wouldn't have done that. Anyway, I only know one woman who wept at Jesus' answer. He says, you are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And this is where that woman wept. She wanted to be married to her husband in heaven. The rest of us probably are just fine. <laughs> they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus does not say we're going to be angels. It's not like we get wings or a halo. <laughs> it sounds like there's a corpse going by out there. <laughs> anyway, oh, okay. And then Jesus says, uh, about the resurrection from the dead, have you not read that what God said to you? I am God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. So Jesus says, you're way off and you have no power because you don't know the scriptures. And Jesus proves that they do not understand the scriptures. Because they don't understand and they don't believe in resurrection. And when he says he's the God of Isaac and Jacob, these men, he's saying, are not dead. They are alive with God today. Because God is the God of the living. And notice, he says, that God says, I am. And if you read the Gospel of John, John picks this up and repeats over and over, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says he is the I am of God. Our Heavenly Father is the author of life, and his life is eternal, and this is the root of what we believe as Christians. We go around at Easter and we say, Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, so this should govern all that we do, the fact that we believe in eternal life. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Notice that the crowds are astonished, but not the religious people. I try to imagine myself in that crowd. I'm hearing this conversation between Jesus and these religious people, and I've been trying to be a good Pharisee or Sadducee or Herodian, and I have been so frustrated trying to do all of these good works and keep all these laws, and Jesus comes along, and I hear him teach, and I go, thank you, thank you. So, we need to hear the truth, and we need to be freed. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, so now we bring in the lawyer, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now you can translate the word greatest into heaviest. Which one has the most weight? 
which one is the greatest or the most weighty one? Now, the rabbis had 248 positive commands and 365 negative commandments. And so which one is the heaviest? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. One day, I, I swim with a Jewish friend um, over at the Bellevue Aquatic Center, and we were in the locker room afterwards, and she was telling me how hard it is for her to keep all the laws. And I said, oh, Liz, Jesus summed them up in two. And she said, what were they? And I quoted this verse to her, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your neighbor as yourself. She said, wow, that's wonderful. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> okay. Then, while the Pharisees were gathered together, now Jesus turns the table and he asks them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, Remember, they have just heard all of these people shouting, Hosanna, son of David. They have just heard the children shouting, Hosanna, son of David. And they know that, his, that the Messiah is to be the son of David. Well, the son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, and I love this, speaking by the Spirit, when you open the Psalms, David is speaking by the Spirit. That's why we love him. That's why he is venerated, because he spoke by the Spirit. And Jesus tells us that. And he says, speaking by the Spirit, David called him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I put my enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And Jesus uses the word Lord, four times in this sentence to emphasize it. So when we call him Lord by the Spirit, we call him David's son and God's son. And this is stressed all through Matthew that the Messiah, the son of David, is both human and divine. Well, no one was able to answer him a word, and from that day on, no one dared to question him any longer. So he silenced his critics permanently. And instead of being in awe of what he said, they now are going to plot his destruction. These four questions that are covered here are so important for us to know. Jesus taught here our relationship with governments. Give to God what is God's and give to the governments what belong to them. He told us our relationship with eternal life. God is the God of the living. He told us about our relationship with God and others. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbors. And then he says there's one true Messiah, and that is his son, Jesus. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads. They put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And this is what happens in um, churches that teach false doctrine and in cults.
pretty soon it's load upon load upon load, and you just, you practically perish under the weight of that. And so he says, do what they say, but not what they do. Everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries, and these were all things that God told them to do, but they've made them into superstitious things. Um, make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the synagogues, and they love to be greeted with respect and to be called rabbi from others. They set themselves apart. The A-list people who like theater. We learn from Matthew 6, however, that God rewards what is done in secret. But you're not to be called rabbi, and then not to be called father, not to be called instructors. I'm not, I don't have time to go into all of what this means. But basically what Jesus is telling us here is don't ever set a human up as the ultimate authority. That's what happened to us. We set this man up as an ultimate authority, and it just got us into trouble. And, um, okay, I'm going to go on there. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here we have again, over and over, he said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. These religious people who are phonies will be last, and those of you who love me will be first. All right, here we go. Right into the seven woes. Are you ready? Okay. These seven woes form a chiasm, a Hebrew poem. The first one is that they reject the kingdom. The second point is that they make children of hell. The third is that they have the wrong use of scripture. And the most important, the D, which is always the center, is the most important in a Hebrew poem, is that they do not do justice, mercy, or being faithful. It's the wrong use of scripture. And they become themselves children of hell. And then the last thing they do is reject the kingdom's messengers. So, the first one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door. Oh, this just makes me so sad. I would almost weep while I was reading this. Someone shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. <sighs> Shutting the door. The door of the kingdom is always to be open. Woe to you, teachers. This is our second point. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites who travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. The third one. Woe to you blind guides, blind fools, blind men. And then he's going to go on about how they twist things that they put on the altar. They're swearing by something they put on the altar and not the altar. But the, but the bottom line is that what the altar is is sacred. And you are not to twist scriptures. He says you twist sacred vows. Their teaching is not to be tricky. And tricky teaching is not of the Holy Spirit. Finally, in the middle, no justice, mercy, or faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth, this is what the law said to do, but neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
It's not enough to keep one part of the law and ignore the most important, God's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides. I love this. my favorite line of all of them. Uh, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Just think about it for a minute. <laughs> Swallowing the camel. I imagine a camel went by and a gnat went by just as he was saying that. Okay? All right. Then there was the wrong use of scripture again. Woe to you teachers, laws, and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but in the inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. This is a wrong use of scripture. Blind. First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And then they become a child of hell. Woe to you, teachers and Pharisees. You are like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but is unclean with dead bones and everything unclean. In the same way, you appear as righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You have become a child of hell unclean and dead. And then finally, woe to you, teachers of the Pharisees, uh, of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs, you decorate the graves, and you say, if we had lived during the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the persecution of God's prophets. No, you, but he says you testify against yourselves because you are doing this. You complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? John the Baptist also called them snakes and vipers. And then he goes on to say of the people that they shed the innocent blood. Okay. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And these men are going to be alive, most of them, during the fall of Jerusalem, that terrible time when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And I, I'm not even going to begin to tell you all the unimaginable things that happened when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And then Ju Jesus turns to his people and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this is when you, you love a child, and they've done something bad, and you go, honey, honey, like that. It's just intense grief and longing. Honey, honey, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often? But he's not going to give up. I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Jesus is grieving for what is going to happen to these people. Your house is left to you desolate. Jerusalem is going to fall. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The withdrawal of Jesus is the worst thing I can imagine. He says his goodbyes and leaves the temple. It has been a very busy Wednesday. But, he says, this is not the ultimate goodbye. He says, until he is going to come again in complete triumph. 
Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's our last passage for today. But Earl Palmer taught me that for every negative, there's a positive. So I have found the positive. I'm going to compare for you now this chiasm of woes with the chiasm of the blessings found in Matthew 5. In Matthew 23, he says, you've rejected the kingdom, you have shut the door. But in Matthew 5, he says to his beloved, poor in spirit, inherit the kingdom. It's an open door. And then, in Matthew 23, you make children of hell, and there's no comfort in that. But he says in Matthew 5, those who mourn are comforted. In Matthew 23, he says the wrong use of scripture twists God's words. But in Matthew 5, he says the meek inherit the earth and are willing to learn. In Matthew 23, he says there was no justice, no mercy, no faithfulness. But in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says the righteous will be satisfied and the merciful will receive mercy. Then he says in Matthew 23, you have the wrong use of scripture. But in Matthew 5, he says the pure in heart will see God. They have an open heart to God and they will know God and his scripture and it will be powerful for them. Then he says, you have made children of hell in Matthew 23, and the inside is unclean and dead. But the peacemakers in Matthew 5 will be called the children of God. And finally, you have rejected the kingdom's messengers, and you risk condemnation to hell in Matthew 23. But in Matthew 5, the persecuted for righteousness own the kingdom of heaven. And closing, I'd like us to sing together. I'm going to turn this off here. Don't turn it yet. I won't. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. What's the other word, verse? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Thank you very much, ladies. God bless you. Ha, ha, ha.